2: Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the regulation of your supplements with naturopathic doctor and educator Anique Moffat. We'll discover the top five wellness tips with naturopathic doctor and health researcher David Nelson. We'll find out about a new paradigm for a sustainable future with author Jeff Hardy. And lastly, we'll learn how reform can cure Canadian health care with author Don Drummond. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Alzheimer's disease causes changes to the brain that begin two decades or more before symptoms appear. A study out of the Washington University School of Medicine reveals that the bacteria that live in the gut also change before Alzheimer's symptoms arise, a discovery that could lead to diagnostics or treatments for Alzheimer's disease that targets the gut microbiome. The findings open up the possibility of analyzing the gut bacterial community to identify people of higher risk of developing dementia and of designing microbiome-altering preventative treatments to stave off cognitive decline. The same type of machine learning methods used to pilot self-driving cars and beat top chess players could help type 1 diabetes sufferers keep their blood glucose levels in a safe range. Scientists at the University of Bristol have shown that reinforcement learning, a type of machine learning in which computer program learns to make decisions by trying different actions, significantly outperforms commercial blood glucose controllers in terms of safety and effectiveness. By using offline reinforcement learning, where the algorithm learns from patient records, the researchers improve on prior work showing that good blood glucose control can be achieved by learning from the decisions of patients rather than by trial and error. Researchers from the University of Cambridge have developed a solar-powered reactor that converts captured carbon dioxide and plastic waste into sustainable fuels and other valuable chemical products. In tests, carbon dioxide was converted into syngas, a key building block for sustainable liquid fuels and plastic bottles were converted into glycolic acid, which is widely used in the cosmetics industry. Unlike earlier tests of their solar fuels technology, however, the team took carbon dioxide from real-world sources, such as industrial exhaust or the air itself. They were able to capture and concentrate the carbon dioxide and convert it into sustainable fuel. Although improvements are needed before this technology can be used on an industrial scale, the results represent another important step towards the production of clean fuels to power the economy without the need for for environmentally destructive oil and gas extraction. I'll be joined by Anique Moffat in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. Anique Moffat is a naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of experience in the field of natural health supplements. She uh, wanted to talk about the importance of eye health today, but decided instead to give us her perspective on an extremely pressing issue from her unique perspective and that is some proposed legislation. Welcome to the show, Anik. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
2: So, you know, we touched upon this on last week's show, so some of our listeners may be aware of this already, but I imagine most are not aware that Health Canada is proposing significant changes to the regulation of natural health products. Can you elaborate on, you know, what this means, just to sort of set a baseline?
1: Of course. Yeah, so so from what I'm understanding, in a sense, is that regulation, there proposing to impose excessive and unnecessary costs, in my opinion, on product with natural product number, so NPM. And what the costs there are suggesting is that they want to, for example, have a yearly fee for manufacturer. What that means is that to do business in Canada, those companies will have to pay, for example, a license fee which is around probably $20,000, and that's even before they start producing anything. That's from one cost. And then for concerning like the NPN, so any existing product with the NPN. So, for example, if you have 10 products, then you'll pay 10 times that fee, which is about $500. So you could see that it could go up really quickly, especially for bigger size company who have 300 product. They could have like a nice price tag of, you know, close to $150,000 just for existing NPN. And then there's all the new product NPN, which depending on the complexity of the formula meaning that if you have only single ingredient it'll be cheaper around a thousand dollars but if you have a a complex formula that has a lot of ingredients it could go up to seven thousand for only that single formula and then there's other fee, you know, if you are to update a product claim. So if new research show that one single ingredient is now have study that show that it helps, for example, for a high site, then you wanted to add on your bottle claim, then you would have to pay an extra fee for that as well. So it could go up pretty quickly.
2: Okay. So for people who are unfamiliar with the term NPN or natural product numbers, can you explain what NPNs are good for?
1: Of course. So NPMs is like the eight-digit number that you see on the side of a label, on your supplement bottle, or on the box. So the purpose is really to give you kind of an insurance policy that the natural product has been looked at the authority in Canada. So it's met-specific standards and has been authorized for sale in Canada. So, they're looking at the name. So, they're making sure that we're not over-promising something. So, you could not have a bottle that say cure-all, for example, that would be over-promising, which would be a big no-no for Santa Canada. But they're also looking at the ingredient, the dosage recommendation, the health claim, potential interaction, and side effect. And all those are, they're based on various sources. So, they're looking at human clinical study, traditional use or scientific literature and that's how they're base their approval. And that's what's important because they're basing that on the verifiable data. And the data are often on human clinical studies, so it's kind of a gold standard that um, Health Canada want to apply by, and that kind of tells the customer that what they're buying has been seen to have health benefit on humans.
2: It sounds to me like NPNs are important for the safety of products, but with respect to the new proposed changes... Other than the extra fees, are there any sort of helpful changes to the regulation of the efficacies of the product, or is this just about the fees?
1: Yeah, so it is about the fees. So Health Canada, it really plays a crucial role. It, it does provide a standard for those specific ingredients for the extract in the formula that's been studied but it's the same regulation that applied there's not providing any extra verification or there's no extra step that they need to do in order to suddenly increase those fees so in the past Health Canada was providing those services without any charging fee. So it's kind of a new, it's a departure from what they previously were doing in the
2: past. So if I understand you correctly, there's no improvement to the actual process. It's just now they want to charge the companies for it. Is that essentially it?
1: It is. So it's like going to zero to 100 in five seconds. So they used to be free and now they're wanted to charge for it.
2: So under the current regime, how does Health Canada pay for the work that they're currently doing? And I guess from your perspective as a naturopath, like why do you feel it's unfair and discriminative to have these charges added?
1: Well, right now what they're using is they're using the collected tax. So if you're looking just as recent years, so in 2020, when you look at how much tax they collect, it's over $700 million in the tax of the supplement. So I think that that should cover their costs, but you know, and on top of that, if we're looking at the expected growth, we see that in the next five years, expecting that the sale of supplement, which has increased drastically since the COVID, will be like close to 6% increase in the next five years. So more tax would be collected. So I think that should be enough. So furthermore, I think we should be warned and not penalize people who proactively pay out of their pocket to maintain or improve their health with supplements. So if more people would use natural product and focus on their health, healthy lifestyle, I firmly believe that we would have an impact on financial burden of the healthcare system. Supplements right now, they're mostly affordable, but some people still have a hard time choosing to purchase them to improve their health. So if they're increasing the cost, that would probably make it even harder for low-income people. I feel like everybody would be able to use supplement on a daily basis that would help prevent treatable, preventable, and chronic disease would drastically decrease. So now that the Canadian government wants to increase the cost of their chosen natural medicine, because they're not choosing the government's pharmaceutical, they're driving people in the wrong direction. Like, I just feel like it's a kind of unfair, especially since pharmaceutical drugs are not taxes.
2: Okay. So let's focus on that for a moment. Okay. Can you shed any light on the taxation discrepancy between medication and, and health products and, and how that contributes to the discrimination?
3: Yeah. So
1: unlike prescription, natural health products are subject to taxes, like I mentioned earlier. So I have a crazy idea, you know, in Instead of seeing supplement as you know just a drug, why are we not just seeing them as a way to be an adjunct to proper lifestyle and diet? You know, we are not taxes on stable food. Why should we be taxes on supplement that really are nourishing our bodies for what is missing? Like. For example, vitamin D, you know, it's a fairly inexpensive supplement, but it can help prevent bone decay. It can help with uh, a bunch of degenerative disease. So I think it it should be subsidized or at least not taxes. So that way, you know, people can freely use them on those basic needs. And what I'm I'm concerned also is that the additional financial burden on individuals that strive to maintain their health If we consider the high costs incurred by Health Canada to treat illness, I feel they should be subsidized to prevent, measure, and natural health products, not just extra fee, but... I also believe that alternative therapy should be covered and so maybe it's another topic for
2: yeah, that, that's a bigger topic can you explain how these proposed changes might even further impact consumers of natural health products or services so what else is there
1: so there's like a, a lot of different fees that they're proposing so the first one is like we mentioned increasing the price so if the price overall on supplement is increased well this most likely will be passed down to customer because yeah manufacturer will not be able to absorb those additional costs. You know, if we go from zero to, let's say, $200,000 a year, definitely those extra costs will be passed down to customer. And many small family owned companies may not be able to afford those costs and will maybe simply move away or close. That's one thing. And then if not only the price will increase, but let's think about the lack of innovation. So the more complex a formula is, the more expensive uh, NPN will be. So that kind of lead to a reduction of maybe selection and probably innovation too. So less choice for customer and then product reduction so it may force supply to only produce certain number of popular items and making not affordable or not offering it at all other product that maybe other customer needed. So, if someone has a specific need and they were using a specific formula, but let's say instead of a thousand people using it, only a hundred, then it might not be affordable for a company to keep that product on the shelf. And therefore, their product that they were using to treat X condition will now will disappear. And the last proposed fee is you know, on claim. So, Often when you propose a supplement to South Canada to be approved, you ask for approved claim. So there's predetermined claim on each ingredient, but if study down the road comes out and say, Hey, that ingredient is also good for to help balance your blood sugar or help with your gout or whatever it might be, maybe some company will feel a little bit unsure of adding that new claim because of additional cost. So it will lack transparency to the customer because maybe they would have used it or buy it for that purpose, but because the claim is not there, they will not know. So that will, again, decrease the availability and diversity of supplement that's available for the customer.
2: Let's shift gears a bit. As a naturopathic doctor, as a practitioner, how do you think the impact of these changes is going to impact your practice in, in particular?
1: Well. That's a really good question because in the practice, you want to make sure that you're tailoring the treatment for the specific need of the patient. And if you're lacking innovation or diversity and you're restrained to just a couple few formula, it might not be the exact formula that you need for the patient, but unfortunately, that's always going to be available. So you'll have treatment care that may be less efficient, or you may not be able to offer at all what the patient needs. And also, when the cost of supplement increase, I feel like it's often creating a barrier to access the patient from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds. So it kind of that limit accessibility can also create more health disparity and those who cannot afford expensive supplement because they will increase if the cost has to go somewhere. And therefore, those people that cannot afford will have no choice but turn themselves to other alternatives that may be less healthy or less beneficial for them.
2: Okay. So originally, you were going to talk about eye health on the show. Given what we've already covered, can you sort of relate everything as an example? Like, so if somebody had an eye care issue, how might these changes impact the care?
1: Yeah. So let's just create out of the blue an example that let's say, you know, we know that we have a lot of research on good products for high health, for example, lutein and zenzentine. But those we know today, they're healthy, we know they're going to stay. But let's say another study comes out for another ingredient extract from, let's say, a, a cactus flower. And we see really good improvement in high site. Then what's going to happen with that study? Who's going to decide to invest and make it available for the customer? Would it be big pharma? Well, probably not because they may not have an interest in or a need. They might have a prescription drug that does the same thing, or they may want to just isolate that active ingredient, which may lose the power of that synergic effect of the flower. People who, high surgeon, well, definitely not. I mean, they don't want to take their business away or other optometrists may not be interested as well. So right now, it's only the Canadian manufacturer that may be handcuffed and they might not be able to afford because the price will be too high because in the new proposed legislation for the regulation of NPM, any new novel product, they're looking at over $50,000 to apply for that fee, for that license. So that will probably make some company not really willing to spend that money when other products are available. So what I could foresee is that will just be the halt. In innovation and unfortunately we're, we're learning every day. We're, we're doing study, we're looking at new ingredients and we know that there are some that we could use but maybe not the Canadian market may not be able to afford it.
2: Okay, we have time for one last very quick question, and that is if, if anybody who's listening to the show wants to do something about it, which website should they go to?
1: Uh, definitely visit our saversupplement.ca and write to your MP. You know, when you go to the website, you see that all the information is there. They have extended the deadline, so you have uh, until beginning of August, August 10th, to be exact to talk to your MP and let them know that it's important to okay. not make those changes.
2: Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: That was Dr. Anique Moffat, nd We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the top five wellness tips on the tonic. Do you use vitamins, supplements, or other natural health products like natural toothpaste and deodorant as part of your daily health and wellness routine? If yes, what I'm about to tell you needs your immediate attention. Health Canada is proposing new regulations that will have a devastating impact on the natural health product industry. If the changes Health Canada is proposing goes through, many of the brands you use will see dramatic price increases or stop existing in Canada altogether. Stop Health Canada from taking away our natural health products and help to keep these products on shelves by writing a letter to your MP through saveoursupplements.ca. It takes less than a minute. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Bussen.
2: David Nelson is invited faculty at the Nova Institute for Health of People, Places, and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness service business owner, and he's written numerous academic articles. In his latest, he establishes the importance of the acid-alkaline balance of the foods we eat. He lives in Woodstock with his family, and he's a frequent guest on the show. Welcome back, David. How are you?
3: Good, Jamie. Good. How are you doing? Doing very well.
2: So Excellent. we're going to make an assumption today. We're going to be speaking to an average Canadian. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like, but we're going right. to assume a Canadian who doesn't have outlier health issues on the one hand, or on the other hand, isn't incredibly fit already. Right. And your task today, should you agree to accept it, is to come up with five ideas for the average Canadian to do that would improve their health Overnight. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, not literally overnight, but in short order. Okay.
3: Something we can build on.
2: Exactly. So, where would you like to start? Where would you start if you were going to consult
3: with somebody? Well, you know what? I often start with something that people do on a regular basis, and that's what they eat. Yep. And to make one really quick uh, change in someone's life, one of the things that they can do is they can go with uh, something that I like to call, just because it rhymes, almost meatless Mondays. Yep, but it's also add more plants Monday. I like to think about it like that too. But meatless sure. Mondays. So, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people are going to be familiar with the concept. Let me tell you why I think that it's important. People do need to incorporate more plants into their diet. So, I mean, just from a research perspective the polyphenols, the fibers, and the other things in fruits and vegetables, they talk to us, our bodies, and our microbiomes in ways we didn't understand before. So taking a Meatless Monday, it's not just to go meatless, it's actually to expose yourself to the diversity of fruits and vegetables that you're not exposing yourself to on a pretty regular basis. Now people tend to confine themselves to a couple different fruits and a couple different vegetables, but from what we know now about longevity, like variety in fruits, vegetables, and if you can handle them whole grains, does give us really robust health. So the Meatless Mondays, I say that it's a fun way to talk about it, but really it's about eating real food that is more plant exposed. And you're getting a richness in polyphenols and fibers you don't usually get in the rest of the week. So that'd be the first thing I'd start with.
2: Yeah, the whole theory behind tonic is that when people start their health and wellness journey, they almost invariably start it with food and exercise. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. from there, it kind of, you know, then they might get into other areas which are, you know, more niche. But that's pretty much where everybody starts. And I can yeah. tell you over the years, like we didn't, it wasn't as striified as like a particular day of the week where we weren't going to eat meat. But I would say where we used to eat meat, maybe five, six days a week, we're down to maybe one or two. Right. And I barely notice it anymore. Mm. And I love a good steak. Like, you know, yes, it, right. You know, so it's easily doable. All right. So that's diet. Where would you like to go next?
3: Well, I mean, number two for me is stress. Yeah. It's, I, you know, if I can get people adding more plants. See, the thing about nutrition is, is tied to mental health. Nutritional psychiatry is something that people are going to hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. So why does that tie to stress? Well, I mean, people have stressful lives, and you have to be resilient in some way. Mm -hmm. And what are your stress-reducing practices in your life? So that would be the the next thing that I would talk about. So... From a stress perspective, you know, it's funny, in my, where I live in Woodstock here, I'm going to talk about something that I didn't think that I'd like, but I turned out that I love. Yeah. And that's yoga and goats. <laughs> okay. So there are yoga communities now where people get together and do yoga with a yoga instructor, but you have these goats that are with you. And I can't describe, like I can describe what it does. It makes you feel incredibly happy and centered and stress-free while getting this physical stretching and, and, and meditative workout at the same time. So you're getting like three things. You're interacting with animals. Normally you're outside nature. That's another one. You're in a community of people and you're exercising. So there's like four overlapping things there. So that's probably why that reduces stress and it's becoming more popular over time. I just, we just happen to have one here, which is, which is really nice.
2: Let's be clear. I think I'm glad that you're doing yoga with goats. I think for most people, that's not necessarily accessible, particularly in, in T.O., But even just doing yoga period yeah. or meditation, you know, find what works for you. I, you know, me, it's like a walk with my dog in nature will calm me down no yeah. matter what's going on. Uh, well, and I think
3: the the benefit of community to, yeah. uh, you know, Jamie, when you're doing yoga with people, yep. there's an intangible, you know, almost metaphysical, spiritual benefit to that, which absolutely is also stress relieving.
2: Last show, we talked about AI and tech. Does tech have a role in improving our health and wellness?
3: Yeah. I mean, it, it does. In the last segment that we did, we talked about, AI and how it's influencing the wellness industry, and so. Just to highlight that, the digital health tools are everywhere and they're innovative and accessible for a lot of people now because it's hard baked into something people carry with them. That's normally your, your, your smartphone uh, and apps provide a lot of those uh, resources. So you have mental health support, eating support, fasting support, intermittent fasting. If you want to do guided meditations or some reflective uh, listening, you can do all that stuff in apps as well. And then they have, you know, you have wearable technology, sleep trackers that monitor monitor vital health statistics. So for like myself, I like to monitor my sleep and I like to make sure my blood pressure, my temperature, my heart rate all go down at night. My heart rate variability goes up and that gives me a good indication of my readiness for the next day. So yeah, tech definitely does play a role in helping us be healthy. And then we just have to, have to here's the important point, we got to act on the information that the technology is trying to communicate to us. Yeah. So if you regularly have a high heart rate and you're exercising and you notice it coming down, that's feedback to keep
2: exercising. Agreed. I know family members who will exchange how many steps they've taken and what their right. you know what how long their REM sleep was. Almost like a competition. I'm not exactly sure who wins or who loses. Mm-hmm. Maybe everybody wins. I don't know. It's funny, they've done research. For those who are already self motivated, the tech almost doesn't matter. They're already kind of doing it for their own reasons. Right. But I do believe it would benefit the average Canadian who perhaps isn't doing it yet because I do believe that kickstart actually seeing the numbers will help you make that adjustment.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. It's extrinsic external motivation, increasing intrinsic or internal motivation. So it's exactly what you said. Yeah.
2: Until it becomes lifestyle, right? Once it's lifestyle, it becomes embedded and, and then maybe you don't need the tech or the tech just becomes ubiquitous, but there is a downside to tech, right? It can sort of invade other areas of our lives and maybe isn't the greatest.
3: Yeah. 100%. I think that the pendulum has swung the other side and we're on tech too much now. Yeah. So it's probably eroding a little bit of our health. So despite the tracking of your heart rate, if you're on it all the time and it's increasing limbic traffic in your amygdala and it's making you stressed, probably not a good idea.
2: I was one of the last adapters to the smartphones because I noticed that everybody's attention span was different when they had their phones. Mm -hmm. Um, and now, you know, I tend to like, when I jump into something, I go whole hog. Now I find it hard. I have to consciously put my phone away when I'm out Mm -hmm. for dinner or for example, when I'm watching a movie or a TV show, because my mind will drift. If I'm not engaged for even a minute, I find myself picking up the phone, which isn't Mm -hmm. necessarily helpful. So I would say that I'm probably a prime candidate for less tech use at this point.
3: Well, and I mean, what, what you're really talking about there, and I think, well, tech can be used for good, what you're describing is, you know, my experience, too, at times, and other people's experience at times. This is the, the problem with the smartphone technology. However, hence the entry and the rise of the digital detox. Yeah. Detox isn't just for our physical selves. It's also for our mental selves. So I'll explain it quickly. I, it's this approach. You take certain times or days... And you either reduce your screen time. My preference is eliminate the screen time. Yep. Organize your life in a way that you can turn the phone off or have it in a place where you're contactable, but you're not drawn in by it. You need to learn how to manage digital distractions. And frankly, there's there's vacations and stuff now where you can go and it's a digital detox. No phones, no nothing, nothing like that. And sometimes they go to remote places where there's no cell service. So you're not even like, you don't have any opportunity to do the digital thing. And so people describe it as liberating in ways that they had never realized. And what you're describing is your brain actually gets a little sucked in and you dissociate, that's actually the word, into your phone's space. And so the detox allows you to kind of reintegrate back into the present moment. We all kind of deal with this a little bit now. So, um, I mean, you're raising a really important point that we need to talk about openly so that we all get on the same page about how to manage this. You're right. We need a detox from this sometimes.
2: Right. And sometimes we just need to get out to nature, right? Would that be point number five?
3: (laughs) I would say that's definitely number five. You can take it. That's the segue right there. Spending time in nature. Uh, what the Japanese call Shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing, has a long tradition in many places around the world. And it's been shown now with the research, uh, especially places where I'm an I'm a invited faculty, where it has numerous, numerous, numerous health benefits, reducing stress, improving mood, boosting the immune system creativity goes up. People actually have even better relationships with themselves and other people. And people who are more nature-related tend to eat a little bit more plant-based foods. And people that are nature-related actually have more longevity factors. So there's a whole bunch of reasons to be nature-related. And Canada has done a good job of preserving a lot of nature. And uh, we should take advantage of it by getting out into it. That's what we spend our taxes on. So we should use it for our mental health and our physical health.
2: Agreed. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Absolutely, Jamie. Thank you.
2: That was David Nelson, ND. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit omegaalphainc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription
1: for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine,
4: Jamie Busson,
2: Jeff Hardy is a 50 year veteran healthcare system service and facility planning and design consultant. He's the president and founder of the Care for Peace Foundation 501 bracket C bracket 3, home based in California. Jeff is also an author, and his newest release, The Care for Peace Manifesto, a global mandate to secure the second human evolution in perpetuity, discusses ensuring sustainable human development, how to care for peace, and development of the global process to address the existential crisis facing humanity today. Welcome to the show, Jeff. That's a mouthful. Thank you. So what is the Care for Peace Manifesto?
0: Well, it comes right from heart and what happened to me when I was a little kid and uh, going to Mexico and seeing some incredibly poor people. And then all of a sudden I was working with nurses in American hospitals and helping design hospitals and seeing these absolutely wonderful people taking care of patients. And it's that feeling of your care is going to the heart of something, even though you're dealing with clinical delivery issues. It all started with nurses and teachers and knowing the people who actually already care for peace that's where it began. And then eventually it ended up becoming an organization, a nonprofit organization that moved that idea of caring for peace to a whole country, Myanmar, where we did a prototype clinic that would allow us to practice
2: caring for peace. So what does it mean to you? What does the phrase care for peace mean? Care for peace. First of all, I think peace has been
0: uh, incorrectly assigned to the space between wars or after the end of war, and it, it isn't. And care is something that is a dynamic process. Uh, it's, at, it's active. So you have active care to active peace as opposed to the original definition. So what we have to do as a world, as a nation first, and then as a global society, is get to the point where we are like nurses and teachers, and we're caring for the world and caring for the peace in the world on a regular basis, on a now basis. It's not something that you're going to have, and then you can just pretend that you're living in it. It doesn't work that way anymore.
2: Okay. I'm big into practicality, so I understand the theory behind this, and it's admirable. But as a practical matter, how can our listeners do that? What can they do?
0: Well, I think they're already doing it in a lot of ways. They're recycling and they're talking about it among their friends and thinking of possible solutions. And they're looking at what is happening in the world today and trying to figure out what to do. And that's one of the reasons why I have divided the past, present, and future into three categories. The past, is the first human evolution. And it ended at mutually assured destruction. And now we are in this suspended human evolution where we can't use the first human evolution of the way we used to do things to go forward. That's just not going to work. We've got the whole global climate problems. We've got seas rising. We've got too many people. We've got a over-militarization, we've got to make some major changes. So the idea is to establish a process that will allow us to work on a global scale to get to that second human evolution, which we have to design. We cannot use the first human evolution theories and concepts except for learning from our mistakes and learning enough from the people today who are already moving in this direction, including The World Health Organization, United Nations, you name it. It's uh, the Melinda Gates Organization. So there's a lot of things we're doing right now that are moving rapidly towards that end result of the second human evolution. But it's a global concept. We've got to do it on a global way. We cannot just keep doing it nation-centric.
2: Okay. So what do you see as the impediments? I, I can sort of conceptualize them. I have some ideas. What do you think the problems are in, in working towards that? The biggest impediment
0: is us. It's like the old Pogo cartoon that says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Yeah. Um, we have to just look at what the us is right now. And right now, our leadership is just really straddled with first human evolution concepts and thoughts. And they're playing catch up and they're trying to deal with next steps of big, gigantic problems Each nation seems to be working in in their own manner towards individual answers to individual problems, like Florida is going to be building lots of dams, like it's going to look like a big Holland or something. So I think that what we have to do is we really have to take this discussion to the global stage instead of having it a nation-based issue where we're talking about what to do about the poor people in the world and about how women are being abused in Guatemala and India. And we need to really pull this up to a global stage. It's getting there. I don't think that I'm coming up with some crazy new food idea. It's it's something that the World Health Organization, the United Nations, Bill and Melinda Gates, they're already working on this. So I'm saying let's keep going, but we better up it a bit. We better get harder, faster. And I can only quote Al Gore who said that things are getting worse, but they're getting worse too slow. We've got to go faster in this process.
2: You know, respectfully I don't think there's the political will to do that right now. I think the anti-globalist movement, which is, you know, across many nations, I think is an impediment. And I think, you know, frankly, the rise of totalitarian governments across the world would be met with skepticism by the democracies and coordinating efforts universally. I just think there'd be a lot of inertia there. I'm not saying your idea isn't a good one. I'm just I I wonder if it can be practically done, even even if you had people motivating.
0: You're injecting reality. Yeah, of course. I'm a realist. I totally agree.
2: Yeah.
0: I totally agree. What I'm trying to do is establish a process because the system is not the solution. The process is the solution to getting to what it is that you want to get to, whatever your outcomes are that you want to get. And we're going to have to go on a path that is probably a very different path. Some of it will be grassroots. Some of it will be organizational, some will be inter-organizational. I met with two women yesterday who are part of SheCan, which is a women's organization helping girls all over the world try to get to college and be educated. So what they were talking about was real simple, is that they're getting together with other organizations like theirs. That's a good way to start. They need to just start bringing together women from India and Guatemala and Pakistan and everywhere else, and maybe this whole whole thing will evolve from a gigantic women's movement. I love that, because this whole thing started for me with understanding nurses and seeing that unbelievable feeling of caring for people. And their goal is to care with a result, and that's what we have to do on a global scale. We're already getting there, we're already doing it, but we're not going fast enough.
2: Okay, so I mean, I can get on board with that type of work. I guess guess my perspective is, I think you might even get bogged down by trying to tie it to a, a philosophical position where we all have to coordinate like internationally. I just don't see that happening, but I'm all in favor of good work being done all over the world. Maybe we could focus on that. So what are some of the initiatives that you're doing in terms of developing clinics around the world, for example?
0: The whole process of developing the clinic in Myanmar is the care for peace moniker adage, which is that the care for peace premise in a nation is that there is a strong link between providing care through public health, public education, and community development services to the underserved people of the world and the peace desired by the government and the governed. What we did was we built a clinic in a 10-year period, which is also a community development center, and we took that idea of caring for the people so that the country could have peace. It was a big initiative. It was highly successful. It's still actually working. It's still there, even in spite of the military coup that occurred last year, so that's one of the things that we're trying to do we're taking what your comment was you know i mean there's a practical practical process that has to occur and some of those things are keep looking at nurses that's the first thing look at teachers teachers are also people who know how to care for peace so we need to start putting all the, that together, and we need the people. We need people to also start philosophizing. I mean, let's start looking at this existential situation that we've gotten ourselves into, and start doing something about it. And start writing about it. Start talking about it. That's what you're doing. You're already starting this ball rolling too. So your podcast is a perfect example to me of the answer to your question. What are some of the things that we can do that are being done that will propel the idea of caring for peace ahead so that we can actually care for the peace that we already have and don't go into another war?
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thank you. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Don Drummond is a Stafford Dunning Fellow and adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. In 2011 and 12, he served as the chair for the Commission on the Reform of Ontario's Public Services. Its final report, released in February of 2012, contained nearly 400 recommendations to provide Ontarians with excellent and affordable public services. Welcome to the show, Don. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So you just co-authored a paper entitled Roadmap for Reform, a Consensus View of the Viable Options Ahead for Canada's Healthcare System. Why did you write this paper?
4: Well, I've been tilting at this windmill for a while, so this has been going on for several years. I really think that our healthcare system, despite at one point being a point in pride for Canadians, is is mediocre. Mediocre to perhaps what it once was. Certainly mediocre, not two aspects of the United States where we relentlessly compare ourselves but other systems around the world particularly some of the European countries and I'm energized because I've been waiting for one element to fall in place and that's the public's tolerance of what they know is mediocre to wear thin and I think this difficulty of accessing primary care is that red line where Canadians just say we're really worried and even even we keep referring to the 6.5 million Canadians who are not registered with a primary caregiver but a lot of those People that are registered are having a lot of difficulty in an appointment. When they're blocked from primary care, they end up in emergency rooms, and we know the crises of the emergency room. So I think the public is giving a mandate and an imperative to policymakers to do something. And of course, that's energized us to t- take another tilt at this windmill. And there you have it, we've done it again.
2: I think, you know, exacerbating the problem that you just highlighted is the fact that a lot of the doctors who serve, and in particular in rural communities, are getting to retirement age with no replacement, so it isn't just where we stand right now. It's the potential problem is going to get much worse in the in the coming years if we don't do something about it with respect to well, primary care. In
4: our part we did last year in health human resource planning, there was. A chart that aesthetically is beautiful, but uh, meaning-wise, it was really troubling, and that's 51% of all physicians are family medicine, but 41% of last year's graduating class was in family medicine, and 31% of the incoming class this year has chosen family medicine. 51, 41, 31, the symmetry of it looks really nice on a chart, but it's a very, very troubling chart, and it, it indicates that we're going to have trouble just maintaining the coverage of primary care. we right now. And add into that the target of 500,000 new immigrants per year. So our population is going to be growing very rapidly.
2: Also, I would think, you know, we're all living longer, but we're not necessarily living better, right? Like, so, so medicine has taken us to the point where, you know, many people are living into their eighties and nineties, but the quality of life, I'm not sure that the improvement there has met with the longevity.
4: There's a second aspect of the public outcry that I've been wanting to see I've been waiting to see, and it hasn't really formed that much, and that is when you're getting into the older years of seniors not Too many seniors require a lot of additional support until they get to 75, but certainly above 75 it rises. But our default option is to put somebody in an institution at that point, whereas everybody wants to stay independent in their home as long as they can, and if not in their home, in their association. You have to know, somebody at my age to be quite transparent about it, your prospects in 10 and 15 and 20 years on that model don't look good. You're not going to get what you want. And I don't know why that age cohort then recently turned seniors, about to turn seniors, why aren't they saying, no, we don't want this. We don't like the prospects we see ahead of us. We want something different and put a lot of pressure. Allegedly, seniors have a lot of political power. I'm not sure why they're not exercising on that to get better care put in place for when they're gonna need it.
2: Why do you think it's so hard to talk about these issues in Canada? Canada.
4: Roy Smallwood, the infamous premier of Newfoundland, now Newfoundland and Labrador, once said, I have never said anything about health care that hasn't caused me votes. And I thought that was very well put. And I'm sure all our politicians stick to that. One of the reasons was almost every time a policymaker talks about health care, it's in the context of budget cutting. And you mentioned the introduction, the commission I did in Ontario 2011, 2012 my mandate was basically to save the public purse money there was a reference that sort of said in the process try to minimize the amount of china that you break but really we want you to save money and and i put the best spin I could, that I'm here to improve the quality of public services, but it came in that context. One of my co-authors was the chair of the Ontario Hospital Reorganization Commission in the late 1980s. And again, his mandate was pretty much how do you save money? How do you bring hospitals together to save money? So Canadians quite rightly are fearful of somebody standing up, I'm here to help your healthcare, because they think, no, you're really wanting to save money. And of course, the ultimate nightmare for all Canadians is, don't look more like the American system. Not the better parts of the American, but the part where you've got roughly 40 million Americans that don't have health insurance and can't afford decent care. That is always the thing that keeps the awake, and it's almost historically they said, we're willing to tolerate something we know is mediocre, as long as we don't have that. But you know what? We can have something better, and it doesn't need to cost more money. In fact, I'm convinced the recommendations in our report would actually save money, but that's not where we put the emphasis. We put the emphasis... Canadians have got a problem. We hear them. These are things that can address their problems.
2: So what's different in your new paper? Like, Why is your approach so different from the ones that are collecting dust on the shelf?
4: Well, first of all, we didn't put it squarely in the context of cost saving. Everybody else starts off with the budgets coming out of control. We've got to get ahead of that. We don't talk about that at all. Secondly, we focused on reforms that seem to have broad support and are ready to be implemented. So we didn't start off with let's have more private pay because the fist gets clinched as soon as you make that reference in Canada. Maybe someday it'll come to that. We don't need that. We're not ready for that. Let's focus on the things that have been studied, that have got broad support and can be implemented right now that should see a situation where a politician, a policymaker can stand up and say, I'm going to do something, and you're going to recognize the positive benefits, and you're going to
2: get support for that. So what are some of those recommendations? I, appreciating that we only have a few minutes, what are the key ones that you think we should know well, our,
4: about? Our starting point is, let's continue the movement towards teams. The old model of a standalone physician working extraordinary long hours and being charged with solving every single problem doesn't work. It's not efficient from a medical perspective and it's not what younger physicians want. They want to work in teams. They don't want to study for 14 years and have their goal to be given a vaccination. Somebody else can give the vaccination. They don't want to study for 14 years to spend about one-third of their time in administration and studies have shown that at least 10% of the administration work is just a complete waste of time for everybody. They want to focus on looking after people, of things that have a complexity that. on their knowledge and so if somebody is presented with adult type 2 diabetes and a lifestyle change is what is in order rather than medication well that doesn't necessarily need to be that family physician that could be another expert who has a comparative advantage in that we also think that governance seems to be changed with a bureaucrat or a politician in that province's headquarters guiding everything they don't know the needs they don't know the resources of the local area we've tried that in Ontario we've tried that in Alberta and the feedback it doesn't work, but they were never given the freedom and the budgets to organize themselves within their jurisdiction. And we need to do some health human resource planning. You started off mentioning we have difficulty getting family physicians. We only have 303 geriatric medicine specialists, 470 rheumatologists. We have to plan now, and they're about to retire. How are we going to look after that doubling of the 75-plus? Your default would, well, the family physicians do it, but we don't have enough of that. So now we need nurse practitioners, but we're going to need an awful lot more. We're going to need a lot more personal support workers, but 40% of them quit before they've received work for one year that has to change pay is part of it but it's a whole image but we have to look forward we can't just respond from crises to crises we have to look what are the needs going to be in five or ten years it takes a long time to license a health human resource planner it's not like you need one tomorrow and you can do anything about it
2: do you think we're ready as a country for the kinds of changes that you propose in your paper
4: we're ready from we know what to do, and I think we're ready that the public is is willing to support political leaders who will take the moves, Uh, not only support them, but will demand that they do it. And we complain that we have split jurisdictions and we have 10 provinces and three territories, so we don't have a national system. But one of the benefits of our federation is that we can see things happening in different provinces. And what I look at is the 2021 election in Nova Scotia. And the main issue was the 70,000 Nova Scotia households who are not registered with any Anybody for primary care the public said you must address that if you want my vote and that's what the platform centered on and the government that won one of the first things they did as they created nurse practitioner led clinics and pharmacies that's the right kind of solution but I think the whole package is really an interesting lesson the public said we're not going to take it anymore the politicians responded and they responded with a very sensible proposal that'll help a lot of people we have nurse practitioners clinics in Ontario. There, aren't, there are many others in the rest of the country. We could do a lot of more of things like that. Uh, you know, Nurses, I think, with validity claim they can do 70% of what a physician could do. and It's not like they're going to put them out of work. They've skilled up lots and lots of work to do.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I just uh, had an illness and I've been dealing with a nurse practitioner who's very proficient in what my issue is, and I trust your opinion just as much as I would a doctor, so I, I hear what you're saying. If people want to read the report or if they want more information, where's the best place to go, Don?
4: Well, it's on the website of the Research Institute, uh, the C.D. Howe Institute, but uh, most people, including myself, don't search directly like that. They put <laughs> in something like Don Drummond, Roadmap to Healthcare Reform, anything that looks like that, okay, uh, and it'll come with that. It'll also probably throw up uh, that 2011-2012 commission I chair, which is also interesting because you can see that some of the recommendations got made more than a decade ago and didn't get implemented. The timing's everything in public policy. You need the sweet spot where the public's pushing for it and the politicians are willing to take a chance. We were there briefly in 2012, and then the leader of the Liberal Party in Ontario changed and it all fell away. I think we're there in many, if not most places in Canada, so I, I think we're going to do it this time.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Anik Moffitt, N.D., David Nelson, N.D., Jeff Hardy, and Don Drummond. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at the tonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson, wishing you a healthy and happy week.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.